Recorded during the plague year of 2020, this is the Andromeda Minute. Each week we get together to talk about the all-too-timely 1971 Robert Wise-directed techno-thriller, The Andromeda Strain, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Dr. Jennifer Lavasser, a museum curator at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. And always one of my best, very best guests on, on any of my shows, Jennifer. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for being on again. No problem. Uh, we are in the most, uh, this is this is about as exposition-y as it gets. They're just <laughs> putting all the cards on the table and say, here's what we're, here's what you can expect in the second half of, the, of our movie. Exactly. And I'm used to lots of words. That's what we do. We do a lot of words. Um, <laughs> so if it's spoken or not, I can manage. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, this is let's let's tell rather than show. Yeah. So, um, uh, but we do get a good. Uh, this is a difficult concept if you're not reading a book. Just trying to remember where you know where they're at, what they're doing, and and they're showing the wildfire, of uh, you know the entire lab and how it's built and uh, where the bombs are and stuff. So, right. uh, uh, I think they did a pretty good job considering you know they they fill it in in a minute. This is the <laughs> entire thing in one minute. So right. Um, yeah, this, you know, this this whole segment here where they're kind of really going over the whole thing and they're, you know, I, I it reminded me as I was watching it of a movie like Destination Moon where you've got three crew members or a couple of crew members who really know their stuff. They know exactly what they're doing. Everybody plays a role. And then you've got the one random person who yeah. either hasn't done their homework as um, one of our one of our friends here, Dr. Hall, has uh, admitted to or. Um, you know, just is generally not very bright and so doesn't really get it or is just sort of the blue collar guy in the group. And so it kind of felt that way as they were going through some of this. And, and yeah, obviously, as the audience, we appreciate that one of those people is aboard, but that trope is kind of a little overplayed at this point. And so it's, but it's nice, obviously. And I, I think for, you know, early 70s, this is, um, it's pretty impressive. And, you know, I think, makes me feel a little bit Star Trek-y and its orientation in terms of using video screens. And this is all feels so commonplace now, or at least we found better ways in movies to make this look really cool, like the pop-up screens in um, uh, the Tom Cruise movie. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, gosh, the precogs and all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it, um, yeah it's very... Uh, <laughs> wow! Well, I, I feel good that we're both. We're both yes, we're both having the same. Br- it's yeah. not Vanilla Sky. It's not. No. And, and everybody listening is going. Don't you know? It's, I know. Um, it's not Mission Impossible. I it's know not, that. Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow. And anyway, yeah. we'll we'll leave that but, as a as a uh, something for the for the listeners to, to exactly. To but yeah, this is um you know I this whole you know kind of like what role everybody plays i'm always fascinated by that in movies and how it mirrors or doesn't what goes on in reality so this idea that started in the last minute of you know the single man being the ideal person that is completely the opposite of what we've looked at in terms of astronauts if you think about the mercury 7 crew they were all they wanted them to have exactly the opposite lives of what dr hall has and so Thinking of him as like the key player, if you think of him as that, like the pinnacle of this whole story, the astronauts had very much the opposite kind of a situation. So they're going to have to go through, you know, similar kinds of trials and, you know, have certain kinds of decisions to make and very important ones at that. So 
it's interesting how this movie kind of flipped that around to be you're going to have to destroy everything. You're not going to be the person who succeeds at everything. You're going to have to destroy everything. So we're going to make you the single man with nothing to lose, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you, apparently apparently the single key. guys don't don't study. So right. It's, <laughs> it's like, we need to find somebody who knows nothing about what they're doing and give them the key to a nuclear weapon. Exactly, um, yeah. And I what, yeah, what qualified him generally for this doesn't seem to ever really come out too clearly in terms of like what is his exact um um role and the others kind of it it feels a little bit more obvious in terms of i mean he's the medical doctor and they kind of make fun of him so you know the other the other doctors that's not very nice by the way no no that's (laughs) very very mean they're all you know uh, as a doctor yeah 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 we don't belittle each other that's not really how it works i had to to defend my dissertation every one of you guys had to do it you know exactly yeah but it's uh yeah it's kind of kind of sad by the way minority report i just minority thank you there we are (laughs) um but yeah yeah, this is it's it's you know in thinking about even recent stories um of last the last few months with space flight this feels very you know just like some of the other you know there's been so much literature and talk about how you know predictive certain films of this era could be or tv shows like star trek and how you know we built things that then kind of you know kind of fulfilled these ideas of the screens and touch screens and things like that and now we've actually got spacecraft that can operate based off of touch screens and how modern that SpaceX Dragon is. And so we've kind of finally started to reach that point where what we've seen on screen is kind of becoming reality. And this is, you know, one of a few of this time frame, including things like 2001 that really give us these ideas, I think. And and there's definitely lots of folks out there who are more my age, sort of post-Apollo children who were inspired by the film, these kinds of films and, and, and end up going into engineering and going in and working at NASA. So now, you know, my, my sort of generation is the, you know, the heart of what's happening at these places and they're making these things happen. And so it's just kind of a really cool realization of what we, what we all grew up watching as kids. Yeah, it, it's amazing the confluence of, I mean, things that are inspiring both the real world and these, you know, dystop, you know, not dystopian, but uh, apocalyptic movies that made you, you know what you wanted to avoid in the future. You didn't want to have space bugs. You didn't want to have uh, nuclear nuclear winter and things like that. So, it, you know, this the space program inspired people and these movies sitting in a dark theater watching all these possibilities of when science goes wrong. Uh, I think that's why we have people that we have today building stuff like iPads and electric cars and, and, uh, you know, uh, wind powered grids. It's, it's interesting how the dream came first and then people actually made these things possible, uh, that at the time were, you know, they weren't even on the horizon while while this was going on. Yeah. I mean, to find a similar timeframe for something like this, you really have to go back almost a century to the 20s and 30s when you've got sort of these very fantastical ideas of space travel and what it would look like and things that look like airplanes flying in space and you know by the 80s we we had flying airplanes space air, airplanes basically space planes which is what yeah. we call them in our exhibits um you know in the space shuttle and we're kind of you know moving forward on some of these ideas so if we've got that big of a lag time i really really hope that it doesn't take us that long to figure out how to contain 
um, contagions and other things that are yeah. really the heart of this movie is that, you know, it, if it, if this was predicted or looked at in, you know, 1970, 71, um, you know, how long is it going to take us to really have it sink in? It seems to have sunk in a lot of places, maybe just not here where the audience really was for a film like this. So, um, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I know this probably like, you know, with science fiction and, and engineers of today, real engineers of today had some source of inspiration. I would imagine it was also a source of inspiration for those who work in things like uh, infectious diseases. Yeah, I mean, it would be really nice if you could just get five people in a room and have them uh, figure out in three days how to solve an extraterrestrial virus. Um, yeah. you know, we know, we know that's not going to happen, but and it, it, if only it were as easy as you know, changing the pH of something, but, uh, right. And you know, there is something, um, the thing, one of the things I think that makes this, you know, feel more real and maybe less science fictiony, it's definitely not, um, all science fiction. I think it's a sort of probably a trademark of Michael Crichton generally is that there is, it's rooted in something, it's rooted in something real and you feel like it's coming from somewhere real. It doesn't feel like you're starting at a point that is way in the future. That feels like this could very much be something happening in this moment. Um, so movies like, uh, the day after, is it the day after tomorrow or, um, you know, the sort of nuclear scare, yeah, films yeah. of that, of that same era of the 70s and 80s you know they're very much rooted in those moments and so it makes it feel more compelling and real and possible that you'd end up in a similar circumstance sure i mean and we start even though you know in in jurassic park you have uh, uh, you know a, a ford or a, a ford bronco being chased by a tyrannosaurus rex and you say this is crazy but it starts with the idea of recombinant dna or replacing a replacing a, a frog eggs with dinosaur DNA. It right. doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility. And it, I mean, it, I think that's probably Crichton's greatest strength. He starts with what you know and then stretches yeah. it and keeps stretching it until you're like, yeah, that still seems plausible. So yeah. it, it's in, it's enjoyable in that sense that you can see this is not utterly fantastic, but uh, you could see the starting point here and there. Um, and, yeah. and, and especially this was written, you know, this was written even though the movie was made after the moon landings, it was written before the moon landings and there still was a wonder you know we never had any return samples before apollo 11 so uh you know wondering what we were un uh, unknowingly bringing back yeah. from the moon was a big concern and, and i mean that's why sure. if you, the, the lunar receiving lab was a major constru i mean it wasn't it wasn't quite wildfire level but it's a huge complex and yeah. uh, it has a lot of, you know, the interlock features on and all the positive air pressure and things like that. It was yeah. a concern. And nowadays it's mostly the, the air pressure is there just to keep those, uh, you know, these incredibly rare and valuable samples clean all the time. Yeah. But but also keeping the humans clean. I mean, as, as weird as it sounds and as kind of, you know, silly as it sounds, the idea of the moon germs was very much a concern. Um and to the point of putting, you know, biological isolation garments on the astronauts before they really got out of the spacecraft. Once it landed, they, you know, like the divers kind of threw those in, the guys put them on, and it was really to ensure that anything they may have come in contact with then wouldn't 
you know, contaminate the rest of us. And so it's a really interesting moment here at the time of the moon landings that these ideas are circulating and people are taking them seriously and they're being so incredibly careful with everything and having that isolation inside the mobile quarantine facility. You know, these are sort of iconic images and, and ideas of this era, but, um, you know, there is something to be said for the level of caution. And, you know, it, it, like I said, it seems silly that that would be the idea that would carry, you know, they would carry forward and, and being careful um, I think now we're coming to understand a little bit better um, as regular human beings who walk around on this earth and don't work inside laboratories that being being isolated and keeping an, a sense of isolation is very important for these kinds of um, this kind of research. Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, and, and it's it's funny back in the earliest parts of this of space exploration, the big concern was the mental health of the astronauts. Like, could you handle could you handle isolation, being apart from everybody? You know, if you're sending somebody up in space for, you know, especially Mercury astronauts, if you're up in space for day after day, can you handle the only contact that you have with anybody is through your microphone and uh, and you're, you know, tied up in a little box, the combination yeah. of isolation and claustrophobia. Uh, early early science fiction, like the very first episode of The Twilight Zone, involved um, a, a, a potential astronaut who found himself alone in a, in a city. He's actually in the Universal Backlot. But he, <laughs> he uh, you know, wanders around Courthouse Square wondering, where is everybody? And it turns out he was just having a, a mental lapse in, a, in an isolation booth to be, <laughs> find out whether or not he could do long-duration deep space. Uh, you know, these were concerns, and it's it's interesting how fiction mirrors our concerns out in the real world. I'm expecting that we're probably going to have some kind of uh, plague-related movies coming out when all this is over, um, although I don't yeah. know if be much of yeah. a seller. I remember Outbreak, going to see Outbreak um, many years ago when it came out and thinking... You know, this kind of it's a kind of a same story, different version, a little slightly different scenario. But um, to, you know, to think about how these definitely have cycles as well. And, you know, the, the movie making technology has gotten better. And, um, you know, who would you who would you have in these roles? It would be really interesting um, though maybe a little too close to home um, to see something like this. This may be a remake, basically, of something like this, yeah. uh, this movie, to see how how you could make it interesting today, basically. <laughs> like, yeah. what are you, what layer can you add to this that we don't already feel like we are really aware of? It, they, they would definitely have to pick up the pace because this... <laughs> This this should not be forty three minutes into the movie. You know, in, in no. a in a modern movie, it would probably be about maybe fifteen minutes in. Exactly. Uh, and a lot more lot more time spent hovering over dead bodies in, uh, in Piedmont, <laughs> I think. For sure. <laughs> um, wow. Well, this is a this is a fascinating minute, and a, you know, great use of of early uh, computer. It's a combination of computer graphics and uh, and standard uh, cell animation, but uh, they do a really good job of how it, it, it's funny how people pictured the future. And how close in so many ways they 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 came close to what what we look at in in future life, um, but uh, gosh, so far different than than how it, everything turned out. Who they, they they didn't predict things like you know everybody sending each other pictures of their dinner or, or what their cat was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely the ability to communicate with the outside world is is much more constrained than um, than what we see here and. Uh, um, you know, the, the complaints at some point about wanting a cigarette um, by uh, Dr. Levitt 
you know, is um, something we certainly aren't restricted by. You know, it's yeah, the the this the technology generally has changed, obviously, so dramatically in ways that I don't think was really even predicted back then. Um, you know, one thing I said, and I've repeated this a couple of times over, and even in the last few days, is that my my statement from the very beginning of the pandemic uh, in 2020 it was if the internet goes down we are all in big trouble um, <laughs> and they may not have used exactly those words but um to keep myself uh pg i will say that but you know it, it, it the the reality of it is our our economy and our work cultures and our our lives are really built so um deeply and you know have evolved so deeply around the utilization of technology that looking back at a time like this when you know when dr dutton has to explain how these screens work you know to us it's yeah. very <laughs> antiquated looking and very silly but you know in the 1960s or 70s you know that was that was in that was some newfangled technology it kind of reminds me a little bit of the, you know how you'd see it in back to the future or something like that where these things going backwards in time you look at it and you're just like i don't you know you, you're bringing your own sense of of today with you and it just doesn't you just yeah. can't get it to work out it just like how does that work I, i'm sure if my kids and in fact my kids found me watching some of this this morning they were like what is this you know i think they're very confused <laughs> by like some of it looked familiar and we were watching the scene where the animals are lifted out and tested and, oh, and the kids were i don't think that's anything that's uncomfortable to them <laughs> but they i think it was just the idea that these are like robotic arms that like didn't look all that unusual to them yeah, but no, I think what would have looked unusual is once they saw the people, because <laughs> yeah. the people have very unusual hairstyles. <laughs> <laughs> we don't wear our hair like that anymore. So they're, you know, thankfully they're kind of they would they would focus on silly things like that and not probably, um, you know, they can still enjoy movies from the '70s. Thankfully. <laughs> yeah, oh, that that you know that that's good and. Uh... Uh, it's it, it's not, it, but it is nice that we're no longer in the seventies. We could, I mean, I, I do enjoy movies at this speed, but and Robert Wise is a great director, but the ponderousness of this is so. It's like get on with it, come on. Yes, exactly, and it can, yeah, and that's definitely. I know, you know, in all of the movies by minutes and and other conversations that I've had about movies, and it's just this. There is definitely this era where you know things start to shift away from uh, these long monotonous kinds of dialogue and monologue and to something that moves a bit more quickly and that just mirrors everything we expect in our own society these days is that things are going to move more quickly we have less patience for people who um, tend to take time either in speaking or in any of these um, and so that's you know I think that reflects on how we feel right now about the pandemic and, and how some people feel about it. It's like, gosh, can't we just solve this problem already? Like, why is it taking so long? And why does it have to go through trials? And why, you know, why do we have to wait? Why isn't it something that we could just like, doesn't science have a way of just figuring it out? No, we don't. And we also have to have a certain level of safety and security about it, which is what makes some of the um, decontamination methods in this film really interesting. It sounds like they've tested all this out quite a bit before. And so yeah. um, this whole wildfire station is is um, quite intricate and clearly long in the making. And so the history of the facility to me would be, you know, again, it's one of those, like, I'm a historian and I want context. So I want to know, like, how long did it take to build and, you know, who tested these methods and in what ways? And so it's just, 
yeah, it, it definitely reflects a certain, um, you know, sort of pre- preference of mine, but also, you know, this just this way of assuming that things are happening. And I think, it again, it feeds into a little bit of the uh, um, conspiracy theorist thing is that the government is doing lots of things behind our backs. So, yeah, and I think that's I think that might be the, the thing that's hit me about conspiracy theorists is I think it's comforting to the conspiracy mongers because it's even if it's for in, you know, male, malevolent purposes, the idea that someone somewhere knows what they're doing and are, you know, can and has control over the environment like this is uh, is strangely comforting that you know somebody is in control and mm-hmm. uh, I think otherwise you realize gosh we live in a we live in a world of many unknowns and humans are fallible and not you know <laughs> and don't have all the answers so that, that's ver- that's, that's right. even more scary than any conspiracy I could make of absolutely absolutely uh, wow well uh, let's let's. Uh, continue this discussion as we end the week um, next time. Uh, you know all the places to go to, andromedaminute.com to pick up any previous episodes. Uh, we're also on uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play or Spotify and all those places. Uh, join us on the uh, social media of Andromeda Minute or on, uh, gosh, uh, Facebook at uh, Project Wildfire, the Andromeda Minute Listener's Lounge. Love hearing from you. Join us here on Friday, but we're uh, in the meantime, please stay six feet apart wash your hands and, and wear, uh, a mask. wear a mask please wear a mask it's don't go coughing on anybody and and hopefully we'll get through this plague as soon as possible we'll see you here next time on the andromeda minute Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.